This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Westminster Seminary was founded by a scholar of the New Testament, J. Gresson Machen, in 1929. The study of the scriptures in their original language and setting has been at the heart of what we do since that time. It's central to our primary mission to prepare men for pastoral ministry by teaching them to read God's Word in the original languages and settings. Steve Baugh is professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California, where he has taught since 1983. He's author of a new commentary, The Epistle of Paul to the Ephesians. It's part of the 44-volume Evangelical Exegetical Commentary series published by Lexham Press and available through Logos.com, L-O-G-O-S.com. Go to Logos.com and search for Ephesians Baugh, B-A-U-G-H, and it pops right up, and it's $34.33 on Logos.com. You can buy your copy. I did mine, and I'm glad that I did. Hi, Steve, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Thank you. Before we dive into the commentary and into Ephesians, first thing I'd like you to do is tell us a little bit about the medium. This is an e-book, but it's the real thing. It's a detailed scholarly study of Ephesians in the Greek text with all the usual apparatus. What was it like doing an e-book? No different from writing a hard copy <laughs> book because I simply wrote the manuscript and they are using it as an e-book until it comes out in print. I was told it would be both an e-book and in print later. And this is a major series, right? So far as I'm able to tell, there's the 10-volume set that's available right now, but the projected set is supposed to be 44 volumes. It's a complete Bible. All right. So this is a major Bible commentary to which you've contributed the commentary on Ephesians. And it's a large volume, right? The listener shouldn't think that because it's an e-book, it's not substantial. Well, it was 500 pages in manuscript. All right. So that will keep the listener busy for a couple of days anyway. A little bit. (laughs) Okay. Why another commentary on Ephesians? What are some of the features of this work that set it apart from other commentaries on Ephesians? Very good question, because the multiplication of commentaries knows no end. But I've been working with Ephesus for a long time. I started working with the background of Ephesus and Paul for my doctoral work in 1986. And today, there still are not that many people who work in New Testament who have worked in the background material from Ephesus, probably half a dozen that I know of. So I wanted to contribute in that area by, in part, providing a commentary that provides some background information on the people who lived in Ephesus at the time when Paul writes to them. You did your doctoral work on Ephesus, Paul in Ephesus, and you've spent years and years looking at inscriptions and all kinds of things. Coins. Coins. Yeah, literary material. Tombstones. Yeah. All sorts of things to try to get an idea of what life was like in the Greco-Roman world in Ephesus, which is a major city in the first century. I think you could say that Ephesus is probably the major city in what is now Western Turkey. It was the central place for Roman administration. It was basically their capital for administration of the whole area, not simply of the province of Asia, which it was part. But you find things like there was a government official who published his letters, and he talks about entering Ephesus on his way to Bithynia, which is quite a ways northeast of Ephesus, right near the Black Sea. 
But he uh, gets off the ship at Ephesus and then goes overland up to Bithynia, which is remarkable, really, because he could have taken a sea voyage up to Bithynia pretty easily. And Roman troops were known later on, later century, to have debarked at Ephesus and then gone overland into Parthia, modern-day Persia near Iraq, and then back. On their way back, they left behind a plague which decimated. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that Sorry decimated the that. population of Ephesus. So we know about it from quite a number of, you know, inscriptional remains and other historical remains of that. There was a lot of coming and going at Ephesus, and it was a real hub for commerce and communication. Paul spent considerable time there, well over, you know, roughly two years, and you know about that from the book of Acts. And he uh, spent a lot of time really planting the church and spending time there because it was a central area. We're talking to Steve Ball. You're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking with him about his brand new commentary on the book of Ephesians, which is available through Logos.com, published by Lexham Publishing, L-E-X-H-A-M. It's an ebook for now, but projected to become a printed volume here before too long. We talk as Protestants, evangelical, reformed folk, about grammatical and historical hermeneutics, exegesis, but the emphasis often tends to fall on the grammar rather than the history. Because it's one thing to pick up your Bible and notice the form of this verb or the case of that noun and to begin to make some inferences and things from what you're seeing, which is important. It's another thing to dig into the original setting of the book, which is what you've done here and you've done so well for so long. Why is it so important to read Ephesians or any biblical book in light of its original context and background? You know, there are so many different areas in which the ancient world and ours are comparable. I mean, people are people. They face the same tensions and struggles and stresses in life, you know, food and clothing and family and government. I mean, there are a lot of common things, but there are a lot of differences as well. Let me illustrate with one. And, you know, I brought this out in the commentary on Ephesians 5. When Paul talks about husbands loving your wives, we tend to focus on wives obeying your husbands or being submission to the husbands. I'd really rather put it that way. But he says husbands love your wives, which is kind of an interesting idea for us moderns. I mean, we have the, I think, wonderful notion of romantic love with our spouse. So it seems kind of an odd thing for Paul to exhort, you know, husbands, love your wives. Well, back then, women were generally married around age 14, and their husbands often didn't meet them until the marriage day, and they might be as old as 30 when they marry. So you have a husband who's 30. That's kind of the latest generally accepted date for marriage for men. But girls average at 14, some earlier, some a little bit later, but not much. So the listener needs to understand that in the Greco-Roman world, in the first century, a female who got to her late teens, early 20s, right, and not married. That's unusual. That's unusual. So the language that we read in Ephesians or in 1 Peter 3 about Mm -hmm. husbands and wives, which is written to a similar area, right, Right. we have to read that language in its original context. And if you don't take that into account, it creates a misleading impression. Then we lift that language out, we set it down in our late, you know, postmodern, late modern, post-feminist world, and we set about trying to interpret it, and maybe we turn it all on its head. Yeah. And, you know, Peter talks about living with your wives with understanding. Well, you have a 30-year-old marrying a 14-year-old, and he's never met her before and doesn't really relate to her very well. And 
you know, Greek men in particular are pretty well known for not spending a lot of time at home with their wives. They just never really developed a friendship. Or... The heroes in the literature get, <laughs> you know, they're Homer, yeah. it, right? It's all about yeah. all the great adventures. Oh, yeah. sure. You go off. <laughs> and how does the wife feature? Well, she's just there when you come home. But the story is not about coming home. It's about all the things you do while you're out having all of these adventures. Oh, yeah. There's a dialogue I quote from Xenophon, a Greek author, who says, in the dialogue, one character asks another, and he says, is there anyone you know less than your wife? And he says, no, I, I know her less of, of all of my acquaintances. <laughs> so it's really important in order yeah. to understand Scripture well and richly to have a good grasp, if you can get yeah. it, of the original setting. Now, sometimes it's not easy to do, and sometimes we're not entirely sure to whom or when or where a thing was written. So that can be a challenge. Take Job, for example. But in this case, you know a lot about what was happening in Ephesus when Paul wrote to them. Oh, yeah. We know a lot, but unfortunately, most of the sources we have are untranslated. So you have to read Greek or Latin sources, you know, untranslated. And there are 6,000 of them from Ephesus. And then they require some interpretation that takes some years to master the nuances. These are inscriptions too, right? Yeah, sure. Sometimes these, these things are very, very short. Yeah, and some you have no context. Right, and you think, what on earth is this? And it may take a long time for the pieces to kind of come together. Yeah, what you do is you piece it together with broadening your knowledge, reading more broadly to the ancient world, and making some interpretations that are sound, but you know, not airtight because you have to piece together information from coins and inscriptions and literary sources and other archaeological artifacts. But you can do it. It just takes time and specialized work, which I had spent time doing. I don't keep up with it as much as I could because I'm not an ancient historian by trade. I'm a New Testament scholar, but it is my training and still a you could call it a hobby, <laughs> a side interest that I think is worthwhile. Now, let me give you another illustration. With Ephesus, one scholar has made the interpretation that the Ephesians were well known for their interest in magic practices. You know from Acts 19, they burned their magic books after the failed exorcism of the sons of Sceva. That's in Acts 19, if you want to look at that. And Clinton Arnold has made the case that Ephesus is really well known for its magic practices. And that informs much of what Paul is talking about with Christ ascending over all of the spiritual powers. And I think that's a compelling case. I think he's right. And I brought that in the commentary. I brought out that Paul is really stressing that if you were to peel away the veil separating us from heaven, what you would see is the ascended Christ, not a host of demons at every crossroad waiting to pounce on you, but you see Christ in control. He's ascended beyond any power and authority with a name above any name in this age and in the world to come. That's Paul's emphasis in this book to the Ephesians. And I think it's a background issue that informs much of what he's stressing in his epistle. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. We're talking with Steve Baum about his brand new commentary on Ephesians, which is available through Logos.com, published by Lexham Publishing. For many New Testament scholars, it's a given that Paul did not write Ephesians. But you have reason to think that those scholars, that consensus, is wrong. 
tell us about it just a little bit. <laughs> he says, summarize a massive body of yeah. literature in 30 seconds. There is a book written on the authorship of Ephesians, interestingly. To summarize that is a long issue, but another thing that I did was I really worked on Greek, which sounds funny for somebody who's read Greek for so long, but I really came to some conclusions about how Greek is structured and in particular, I was interested in the question of how would an ancient author or an ancient hearer perceive Ephesians, and why didn't the early church see Ephesians and say, oh, this is not Paul? Modern scholars say, oh, this is not Paul. The style is so different. You don't have ancient authors saying that. You don't have ancient readers of the New Testament saying, oh, Ephesians and Romans are really quite different. And that's a really important point, that the original yeah. recipients did not have the same right. experience of the text that modern recipients have had. The doubts that Paul wrote Ephesians arose in the 17th century. It does not arise in antiquity. No one really doubted it. Let me back up a little bit. One of the arguments against Paul's writing Ephesians is the style is said to be so different from a book like Romans. In my opinion, after working with ancient authors a lot on the question of style, because we do have some ancient Greek authors who describe features of Greek style at length, and I was working with that quite heavily and still need more work in it, but I came to the conclusion that the things that really matter to them make Ephesians and Romans look quite similar. So Paul is addressing different topics, that's all. But the style in Ephesians has a lot of similarities with Romans when you look at it. So a lot of it comes down to the questions that one asks. Yeah. So if you're in the 17th century and you're asking a set of questions, or more particularly in the 19th and 20th centuries, you've got a set of criteria and questions, and you use... Let's say Romans as a baseline, and then you apply that to Ephesians, well, you get a certain result. But if you're in the ancient world, say the second century AD, you have a different set of questions, interests, priorities, and you're looking at this text, you come out with a different set of answers. So it's not like this is science, you know, uh, somebody did a test in a laboratory, and there's some alleged consensus to which all reasonable people must submit. Imagine somebody 2,000 years from now picking up two works by Mark Twain, and their language is not natively English, and they're reading Mark Twain and looking at two different works and saying, oh, the style of this essay is quite different from this novel. <laughs> yeah. And you're thinking, well, wait a second. Modern English people don't think it's that different. It's our native language, and we perceive the contours of the language, the rhythms, the way the language works is really this is pretty much the same author. There are certain features to it which give it a common feel, as it were. I think it's the same with Paul and his authorship. People really need to look at it through the eyes of an ancient Greek person for whom Greek is their language, their language of thought and speech, and, you know, it's in their fabric. And none of the Greeks in the early church had any problem with Pauline authorship. When did Paul write it? And why? Well, he wrote it toward the end of his ministry. He was imprisoned, he says. So it was sometime roughly 57 to 62 AD. He probably was martyred sometime around 64, 65. I think there is some ideas about how to understand that. And he writes it, I think you see this in chapter 3 of Ephesians. He writes it really because he's concerned that his imprisonment would make it appear to the Ephesians that his gospel has failed, that God really is not in charge, and that Christ's 
triumph has really not had any effect in this world. And he's stressing to them, it's had tremendous effect in you. The fact that you are now co-heirs with the saints in light proves that Christ's work is effective, that that's really what the gospel is about, is bringing people into the fellowship with Christ, even if it means the fellowship of his sufferings. And we shouldn't find that to be a unique or unusual New Testament teaching, but he wants to really nail that with these folk, particularly if they had been so concerned with powers in the unseen world through magic practice. They're very attuned to the idea that Maybe there are these competing powers that are still effective, interfering with the triumph of Christ, and he's adamant. Christ is sovereign. He's at the right hand of the Father. His kingdom is triumphant, and you are the fruit of that triumph. So it's not something unique. He does talk about that to the Colossians, and you could even see some of that in Philippians and Romans and elsewhere, but he really expresses it in pretty strong ways in Ephesians. And he also wants them to know that the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been broken down. Why is that important in Ephesians? That's vital because now they are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of Christ and of God, as the phrase he uses in chapter 5, but rather co-heirs with the saints in light, fellow heirs with no division in the church at all between Jew and Gentile. And by the way, this is, to me, this is like common Paul. I mean, this (laughs) this is not unusual for Paul, and part of the evidence of Pauline authorship, this is something that has dominated his uh, ministry and thinking throughout all of his time as apostle to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are fellow heirs. You have summarized all of Ephesians with this phrase, and I'm quoting now, unity in the inaugurated new creation. I'm going to ask you to explain it in the time that we have. Obviously, you've spent an entire massive commentary laying that out. But why did you choose that phrase, unity in the inaugurated new creation? I just want to make one point, though, Dr. Clark. It's not a massive commentary. Okay. It's just the right side. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I, yeah. Harold Honer wrote a 1,400-page commentary on Ephesians. Mine is rather modest in okay. comparison. All right, very good. Fair enough. And it's, it's perfect and wonderful in every way, and the reader should—the listener will want to get a copy. Logos.com. I think you could take apart each one of those words and find Ephesians really stressing those elements. So unity, new creation is— just really wonderful, central, important. I mean, it's everywhere in Ephesians. He even uses that term in Ephesians 2 for us. And then later, you know, we're part of a new human race. Really, the threads of it are everywhere. And then inaugurated is an important point that the new creation is not only future, but aspects of it have been put in place now permanently, and in some cases, fully. So the new covenant, for example, is fully inaugurated. There's no change going to take place to it later on. It's a divinely sealed commitment between God and his people. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically reject it. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain 
the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. You have your own translation of Ephesians, and maybe it's helpful if I read a little bit of your translation of Ephesians 1 or 2, 1 through 10, because some of these themes come out clearly and forcefully in your translation. And you, even though you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked in accordance with the age of this world, in accordance with the ruler of the realm of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all formerly also conducted our lives in the lust of our flesh, performing the will of the flesh and of our rationalizations, and we were by nature children of wrath, as also the others, but God, verse 4, because he is rich in mercy on account of the abundant love with which he loved us. And even though we were dead in our transgressions, it was us he co-made alive with the Messiah. By grace, you are saved and co-raised us and co-seated us in the high heavenlies in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing wealth of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you are saved through faith. And this does not originate from you. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one may be able to boast, for we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should start walking in them. That translation is a little different in some respects than the listener may have heard before. And one of the striking features of it is, as a Greek reader, it strikes me as capturing the kind of vitality and energy that Paul demonstrates in this passage that's manifest in the passage that sometimes gets smoothed out. But also, you use several co-verbs, co-raised, co-made, co-seated. That's very interesting. Maybe you can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, there was no smooth English way to communicate that, and I was less concerned with a smooth translation and more that captured the feeling of the Greek as well as I could without really worrying about a nice style, I guess. And this co-raised, you know, co-made alive, co-raised and co-seated was my attempt to stress that it's simultaneous. When Christ is made alive, we are made alive, and it's in union with him. It's the same act of God to raise him raised us. The same act of God to seat Christ at his right hand is when he has seated us. So you have this inauguration. You have this unity that we have with Christ through the Spirit by faith that Paul is expressing here. And he does that in this whole statement, really running through verse 7, is unified. I think verses 8 through 10 are part of the same thing, but it's almost like an appendage. He teases out something he's previewed in verse 5, by grace you're saved. In verse 8, he then expands on that. But going back to the structure of this, he opens with the direct object, you, and you. And then he gives in verse 4 the subject, God. And then in verses 5 and 6, he gives the verb, 
co-made alive, co-raised, co-seeded. That's the structure of the sentence. So you, switching then to us, which he gives at the beginning of verse 5, he just restates it by including himself and I think really the Jewish people as well who are believers. And then God, acting, has done this. And that's what he says. So this is the structure of his really complex kind of unfolding sentence, which is actually fairly common to get this sort of thing in Greek. But it starts out in a striking way. Oh, yeah. He begins with this accusative, these are the objects, and you being dead in your trespasses and sins. So he gets your attention right away. We, all of us, human beings, but you readers to whom I'm writing, you people have by nature a very serious spiritual problem. That is, you're dead in sins and trespasses by nature. By nature. And he just sort of leaves it there for a second. It doesn't come back and really in a sense, rescue us until verse 4. Yeah, and he says by nature. This is not accidental. It's not something that just comes upon us at some later point in our life, but we are born into this state, and there's no escaping it. We are by nature that. It's the same as being human, is to have this be true of you, dead in trespasses and sins. So that's where he has opened, and it's a very grim-sounding thing. There are a lot of long syllables, and it's kind of ominous-sounding and dark, and then all of a sudden he lights it up with this uh, flash out of the blue, God. But God. But God, because he's rich in mercy, and the love with which he loved us, and it's by grace. He can hardly contain himself, right? He he wants to get to grace, and yet he's got other things he needs to say before he does that. So he sort of starts out saying it and, you know, begins to elaborate on the problem. And then you get to verse 4, but God, and then by grace you have been saved. It just sort of comes out. (laughs) I want you to know. This is definitely Paul. You just read Romans 5, 1 through 11. This is really the same stuff there. And there's really no difference in the doctrine of what he says in Romans 5, 1 through 11. It's very similar, very similar sounding. And the main point he's making here is that you were made alive with Christ while you were still in your sins by nature a child of wrath. Those are the people that God has acted upon, independent of their own worth or desires or abilities. He has chosen his people out of this lost, sorry state that is utterly hopeless, which he's actually going to get back to as uh, Ephesians 2.11 and following flows. You Gentiles, you were without God in the world. You had no hope. You were completely devoid of any connection to God. You were outside the visible covenant community. The Israelites had the law. They had the promises. They had the covenants. This is the very same thing that he says to the Romans, right? You were outside all this, but the good news is when Christ was crucified, all of those boundaries that used to divide us, they're all gone. And you, God is graciously included now into all of us together by his favor, which he gives to people who not only don't deserve it, but who deserve something else, punishment. And not only that, as you explain in the commentary, it's all salvation and the faith by which we appropriate it. It's all a gift, right? Tell us a little bit about that. You point out that he uses a demonstrative tutu, and that is sort of all-encompassing, right? I wanted to go on record that you're the only one who's used a Greek word in this in this uh, <laughs> chat we've been having. I've been restraining myself from using Greek words, but I'm glad you opened the floodgates. Okay. So well, now we'll do some Greek. 
No, uh, I think the Greek is rather ordinary in verse 8. People make a big deal out of it, but when you read a lot of Greek, it looks rather ordinary and straightforward, and I think it is. It's uh, by grace you've been saved through faith, and this does not originate from you. That's really rather straightforward. When he says this, what he means is this whole thing that I just elaborated, the grace, salvation, and the faith, this all originates not from you, but it is from God as a gift. And he kind of stresses in the next clause at the end of verse 8 that the gift is from God. He puts the word God in front to stress it. It's an unusual placement, and it's only found a few times in Paul. And he's just stressing that uh, God has given us all of this, this gracious salvation through faith. And then elsewhere in his epistles, he talks about faith being given as a gift, the act of believing. But if one was an Ephesian pagan, one wasn't thinking about gifts and salvation that way. One was most likely thinking about some sort of cooperative venture or some sort of legal arrangement with the gods, quid pro quo. Yeah, benefactions. Benefactions, oh, yeah. right? It's sort of think of, as you often say, you know, think of the mafia. Yeah. It's the Godfather. So it seems like a gift until it isn't a gift anymore. And so Paul says, no, you didn't qualify in any way, and yet God freely gave this to you. And he also gave you the faith by which you can receive all of this. Yes. I mean, not only was that an amazing thing to say to the Ephesians, that's still an amazing thing to say. There are a lot of Christians who are laboring under an idea that they have to do something to be able to present themselves to God. And Paul says, no, that's not how it works. God comes to you, and now you respond in his grace, but you're already presentable to God in Christ. You're a bride. You've been washed and redeemed. And he's going to present you to himself in the beloved, in his son. It's all because of the merit of Christ. It's right here in our text, and it's elsewhere in the scripture. We have the law written on our heart. We don't have the gospel written on our heart. We have the law written on our heart at creation. So do this and you will live. That's what we know by our nature. And Christians sometimes carry that over after conversion. Do this and you'll live. Okay, I start out by grace. God has shown me favor and saved me. Now I have to keep it up through whatever practice, whatever ideas, whatever feelings. And that is not how you live the Christian life. You live the Christian life in freedom, in freedom from condemnation and in joy and hope and confidence in Christ. So you are sanctified by faith. We had a conference a couple of years ago on sanctification, and I went through Romans 6 for that. You could go through a lot of places, but Romans 6 makes it really clear that our sanctification flows out of faith. We believe that we are growing in our sanctification, and because of our belief in Christ, we do grow. We will grow. But all of that is simply our joyous, free, responsive gratitude to a full and free and complete salvation in Christ. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. No, it's not as if, as sometimes people say and think, that justification is by grace alone through faith alone, but sanctification is through faith and works. It's really the case that justification is by grace alone through faith alone, and sanctification is by grace alone through faith alone, out of which flows good works as fruit and evidence, which is what you see here in Ephesians 10. 10. For we are his creation— as you have it translated, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand in which we should start walking, right? And then you have that start walking. That was interesting, and you explain that a little bit in the commentary. Yeah, the form 
communicates that idea that before all of this divine intervention in our lives, granting us faith, and then all the, you know, while we were still dead, I mean, you have to keep that in mind throughout this whole passage, because those are the central realities he's been dealing with. While you were dead is when he made you alive, which is a you know, more or less a synonym for resurrection. He raised us along with Christ, so co-raised us, and seated us in the high heavenlies. These are not things that are merely future, but they already have an effect in us. Well, what is the effect that we see for these realities? By faith, we see them in the good works that God has prepared for us. We walk in them. We live our lives in growing sanctification by faith through the gracious intervention of God because it's what he created us for, and we start walking in them. Now, I bring out that start walking because before God's intervention, you don't walk in any goodness. That's why he says it that way. And by the way... (laughs) He says the same thing in Romans 6. It's not always translated that way, but he says it that way, that, you know, we could not walk beforehand in new life and in good works. Now we can. So the starting really takes place at God's intervention. This is a rich commentary, and we could go on for a very long time. There are a number of features to which I want to call the listener's attention as we sort of begin to wrap this up. One of the interesting things that you did was to quote Jerome's commentary on Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I thought that was very interesting, and it was a delightful surprise, actually, to see a New Testament scholar quoting one of the church fathers on Ephesians. Can you talk just briefly about your interaction with other readers of Ephesians and how that helped you? The commentary you're referencing is Jerome's commentary that he adds on to that of Origen. He says he doesn't have time to create his own commentary from scratch, so he translates Origen's Greek commentary into Latin and then adds his own ideas on top of it. But I also quote uh, John Chrysostom, who wrote a very nice commentary on Ephesians, and some other church fathers, ones I thought, you know, when they said something helpful, particularly if they're Greek people, you know, you get a sense in which they perceive the uh, nuance of certain terms and ideas. So you're reading the Bible with the church and with other people. I quote uh, Calvin. I quote Thomas Jefferson, for goodness sakes. (laughs) (laughs) There's a section after this uh, where you, it's entitled, uh, or head biblical theology comments, and so you're not just doing grammar and background, you're also doing biblical theology, and we could you know, spend an entire episode on that. And then at the end, you have a section, at the end of this whole section on Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, which you've titled Deliverance from Death to Life, uh, you have a section headed Application and Devotional Implications. Yeah, this was part of the series. So the series required those sections. I had some freedom in you know what to express there, and my understanding of biblical theology might differ from other authors in the series. But, you know, very happily, the editors gave me a lot of freedom to express my own convictions. So, And you see that really, you know, Paul's own biblical theology all throughout the epistle. But as we were saying earlier, you know, in that whole business of the dividing wall being broken down, that's such a big point. And you see how central really Christ is to the way that Paul reads the whole history of redemption. If I could add one more thing that I did in this commentary that may not be done usually is when I have students write papers for me, 
when they're exegeting passages, I am pretty adamant that they compose a one-sentence summary of the whole passage. I call it a thesis statement. So you're summarizing the whole passage with just one sentence, and it's quite a arduous process to boil down a long, complex passage into one sentence. Well, when I exegeted large sections in Ephesians, you know, I go through every verse, but it It has an introduction for every larger section. And the first sentence in every introduction is my thesis statement. So my students will be happy to see that I practice what I preach. So I gave a thesis statement, and that is really important to me because when you're dealing with each verse individually, it's easy to get lost in all the details. And I try to keep that one-sentence summary of the whole bigger passage in mind when you're dealing with the particulars of any individual verse. You want to see where it's going. Remember, this is a book that people would have originally experienced by hearing read out loud. So it's, you know, it just goes by fast when you're hearing it. It's only about 12 pages in the original Greek form, and it would not take very long to read. Yeah, it's an interesting question. When the congregation first heard this, presumably a minister or an elder stood up and read this to the congregation, how long would it have taken to read through this whole thing? Less than a half an hour. would have been maybe 20 minutes. I didn't time it. That's a good question. But it's not very big, and it might have even been read by Tychicus. There is one scholar who thinks that the letter carriers would more than likely memorize the book on the way to the recipients Mm -hmm. and have presented it from memory. That's fairly common in antiquity. Written documents were often merely a memory aid. They were not used to read, you know, word for word like we would do. Our listeners may not know that Dr. Clark is an accomplished disc jockey and radio personality in the past, not only now, but in the past. But you're trained to read and you mark up copy so that your inflections are a certain way. Well, this is how everybody in antiquity was taught from the beginning, from the time they were little kids, taught to read. You practice your inflection and where you pause, where you take a breath, all that. As you think about particularly this section of Ephesians, and we want people to read the scriptures prayerfully and thoughtfully at the same time. We don't think we have to distinguish or separate the two, right? How does this sort of move you to prayer and doxology as you think about the beginning with you being dead in sins and walking in that, he says, with now being made co alive with Christ and walking in that. Well, I have two things to say to that. The first is that my first time working with Ephesians in more detail than before was writing notes for the ESV study Bible on Ephesians. And frankly, that was such an edifying exercise. There were times when I was writing those notes in that study Bible, and I would just have to stop and pray and thank God for being able to read these words. And just really delighting in the Lord's grace and really overwhelmed by it. And so when the opportunity came to write a commentary for this new series, they actually asked me, first of all, to write on the book of Acts. And I said, well, I really want to do Ephesians. (laughs) And they kindly let me do it. And I just wanted to do more of it. You know, I love working the scripture from my ministry here at the seminary. It's always, you know, edifying every day. There's something wonderful to do because I'm teaching the Bible. But that whole exercise of going into depth in the details of a text is tremendous 
tremendously enriching and enlivening spiritually. So I just wanted more of it. And I was not disappointed. And I think at the end of the whole process, you know, this commentary took me roughly five years of work. I mean, I read ancient manuscripts, so I had to learn how to read the script. You know, they're all capital letters all run together. So I had to train myself how to read certain things and new kind of work. I found it to be wonderful. But at the same time, at the end of this whole process, no matter how much work it was, and I spent sometimes 12 hours a day on it, I felt like my understanding of grace was even more rich and deep. And I think what I came away with is feeling free, that I now am free to keep the law of God. That's really the one thing that I came away with is I want to keep God's law now. I shouldn't say now. I wanted to keep it before, but I feel more free to keep it. I feel like I'm enjoying the Lord's salvation so much more and wanting even more to serve him and to be upright and more sanctified in my life before him. And I think that's just the result of the gospel and the word of God. So I think this passage in particular, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, it's a bulldozer. The grace of God just throws you down and smothers you with the love of God. And as a result, you stand up as a new creature and wanting to adorn Christ's glory with your own praise and life. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.